This is episode 1052, my interview with Andrew Steele. We're discussing his book, Ageless. I hope you enjoy it. Guys, I do apologize. The audio quality of this track isn't that great, but hopefully it doesn't disrupt the conversation. Enjoy. Andrew, welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. Great to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm um, really looking forward to this conversation today. I came across your book, uh, which is your first book. Is that right? It is, yeah. First book, Ageless. So it's the new science of getting older without getting old. So fairly hot topic at the moment, I would think. Is that sort of why you why you jumped onto this? It's actually not. This is something I've been interested in for a very long time now. I finished my PhD in physics back in 2011 or so. And toward the end of my PhD, I first started reading about this aging biology stuff. And I think it just really struck me. So actually, I changed career. I often tell people because of a graph. I saw this graph of the uh, increasing risk of human death as we go through our lives. And it just really struck me. So the risk of dying, if you're a human, which I guess everyone listening to this probably is, doubles about every seven or eight years. And so you look at that as a, as a, as a human, you might, you, know, you might be slightly terrified by that. So I'm, I'm in my 30s at the moment. That means I've got a roughly one in a thousand chance of dying in every given year. But if you carry on doubling and doubling and doubling that, eventually it can get very, very big very quickly. So if I'm lucky enough to make it into my 90s, I'll have about a one in six chance of dying in any one of those years. And so, you know, as I say, as a human, that can sound a bit terrifying. Is that on, a, on of some sort of average plane? Numerical patterns in the world. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's sort of an average person. So it's a, an average across men and women, all, you know, all different kinds of uh, you know social classes, all different fitnesses, and so on. That's your sort of average chance of dying. So you can obviously bump that up and down by you know living a good lifestyle or, or the converse, or just being plain lucky or unlucky, frankly. Um, but, you know, looking at this, it means that aging is the single biggest what scientists call a risk factor for all yeah. kinds of different diseases, things like cancer and heart disease and stroke. And I just thought, you know, I've got to try and understand some of this biology, get into it and see if we can do something about it, because it could potentially alleviate what I call in the book the world's largest cause of suffering. So I just had to get involved. So actually, I've been a little bit ahead of the curve on that one. OK, OK. Well, congratulations on the book. Um, very highly reviewed and um, a lot of. Uh, great information in the book as well. Um, but yeah, talk to me about ageless because I guess, you know, the sceptics out there might go ageless. Well, look, it's a natural part of, the you know, the human body or biologically, biology generally. Um, well, would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think that's a very common attitude. I wouldn't know. So I think obviously it is a natural, uh, a natural part of human biology. But actually, if you look around the animal kingdom, it's far less common to age than you'd necessarily think. And I think the reason for that is that most of obviously all the people that we come into contact with age or, you know, our parents, our grandparents, we watch them growing older with time. Our friends, we watch, you know, aging along with us. And, you know, even things like our animals, our cats, our dogs, our, you know, mice, our farm animals, all of these are mammals. They're animals that are lactate, so that, you know, they, they have milk that they use to feed their young. That's a sort of defining characteristic of that category of animals. And yeah. they all age in a very similar way to we do. We, you know, some of them do it faster, some of them do it slower, but it's all basically the same. But the reason there's a tortoise on the cover of my book is because tortoises are one of the rather large number of animals, actually, that literally don't age. So I talked about human risk of death. Um, don't age at all. Years. The... Um, they, they, so they have a risk of death that's completely flat as adults. They have a, a chance of roughly sort of 1% to 2% of dying in every given year. But that stays exactly flat. And what's really interesting about well, that is, you know, although they obviously start off quite uh, old and wrinkly looking, yeah. they don't have an increased uh, frailty. They don't have a decreased reproductive capacity. Nothing seems to reduce um, their, their vitality, basically, as they grow older until the very, very end of life. 
And so it seems like aging is this thing that, you know, evolution can either turn on or off, depending on whether it's beneficial to a given species. And if we can just learn to be a bit more taught to think of all the suffering, the frailty and the diseases that we could try and prevent. Mm. So aging, I mean, has a direct correlation to disease then as well? It does, yeah, and I think this is something that's often a bit misunderstood. All of us know that older people are more likely to die, but just how much more likely is genuinely shocking. So, you know, we've already been through some of those statistics. Mm. And the reason that they're so much more likely to die, you know, there's this sort of myth that you can die of old age, you just, you know, you get a bit wrinkly, your hair goes a bit grey, you go to bed one night and just painlessly you don't wake up the next morning. But actually, you know, most people on a modern death certificate, you're actually not allowed to write old age. It's not specific enough because the reason that these people are dying as they get older is that being older puts you at risk of cancer. It puts you at risk of heart disease. It puts you at risk of dementia, a stroke of this whole sort of laundry list of all the most horrible diseases, the biggest killers in the modern world. Mm. And essentially the precursor to that is the aging process. So, you know, you can smoke, you can drink, you can eat badly, you can not exercise. But, you know, frankly, I'd rather be, uh, you know, heavy drinking, heavy smoking, overweight 30 year old than the cleanest living 80 year old on the planet because the single biggest risk factor for all of these things is just simply being, you know, having been on the earth for a long time. Right, right. So maybe we need some tortoise, um, tortoise juice to drink. We really wow. do. I think that, that's that's what really is, is striking about this because you know there are animals out there that literally defy this this seemingly inevitable process. And by understanding the biology of why we age and the biology, of course, of why tortoises don't, we can potentially you know come up with preventative medicines for this whole range of different diseases. So how do you assess you know uh, another mammal um, like a tortoise not aging at all? Like what do you do to look at that and, and confirm that that's actually happening or not happening? It's a very good question. And actually, the, you know, the sort of the, the long, boring answer is incredibly detailed demographic studies. So, you know, scientists will go out and they'll tag a tortoise and they'll tag its young and they'll watch them over years, over decades and record how many of those animals die and see if there's an increasing risk of that happening with age. You can also do some more sort of functional tests because obviously, you know, there's more to being um, more to being healthy than simply not being dead. And so you can see, you know, how far or fast animals can walk. You can do various experiments in the lab. You can look at their cells under a microscope and see if various things about them have changed as they get right. older and so mm. there are a whole variety of different tests you can do and actually some of them you know they, they really do sound quite obscure so the way that you tell how old a whale is in the wild these are some of the longest lived animals and the the longest lived ones that have been found their age has been confirmed by looking at the structure of proteins in their eye so we understand that the chemistry of these proteins changes as the animals get older and by looking at how that chemistry has changed we can we can basically age a whale and you know if you think about it it's really really difficult if you find a massive whale you know washed up dead on the beach for mm. example how on earth do you know how old it is it's not like a tree you can't just cut it in half and count the rings so scientists have found a variety of different ways of establishing how old animals in the wild are and if you get really really detailed statistics on this you can work out which animals age and which animals don't right so do whales not age well, that's a very good question. I think that's actually one we don't know the answer to because they're, they're just such a difficult animal to study. And right. actually, humans are part of the problem here because unfortunately, the whaling industry was so sort of grimly successful back in the first half of the 20th century. It means that, you know, even if there are ageless whales swimming around in the ocean, they might now be so few in number or so depleted in population mm. that we just can't necessarily find them. But what's really incredible is that whales, they are mammals like us. You know, I was saying at the start of when we were talking, you know, all our pets age and all these different things because they too are mammals. But if whales do age, they age much, much more slowly than we do. Because these yep. bowhead whales, which are the longest lived example that we found, the oldest bowhead measured by the proteins in its eye, at least, was over 200 years old. And that's you know, just really remarkable for an animal that's very similar to us biologically, although it might not look very similar. On the tree of life, they're surprisingly close. Right. 
So um, why would, you know, why would some mammals um, not age? I mean, and then if the question is, if they don't age, really then why do they die? Well, they do die ultimately from a lot of the same things that, that kill us. And so, for example, if you look at the world's oldest tortoise, to return to that example, Harriet, she was a Galapagos tortoise who was caught, we think, by Charles Darwin when he visited the Galapagos Islands. But she outlived him by over a century. And although she stayed you know, fit and healthy for most of her life, eventually, right at the end of her life, she did start to decline and she eventually died of a heart attack. But the difference is she died of that heart attack at the age of 175 rather than you know, 75, like you might more typically expect for a human being. So a lot of these animals, they do die of the same kinds of things, but they can have that period of ill health squashed down to a very, very small period of time. Okay, so that ageing process in some of those mammals is later, much later in life, but also shorter-lived. Is that... Yeah, and that's a, there, there are various different aspects of how we could try and treat the aging process. And one of the things that a lot of scientists like to talk about is this idea, it sounds a bit technical, but it's called compression of morbidity. So morbidity is just the word that scientists use to mean you know, being unwell in various different ways. Mm. If we were to compress that period of life, it might mean, for example, that you live to 100 years old, but you only spend your last couple of years in ill health. And actually, we already have really good examples of humans who can do this, and that is those humans who do make it to 100 years old, this group of people called the centenarians, yeah. even people who make it to over 100 110 called super centenarians and what's most incredible about these people isn't just how long they live it's also the fact that they seem to stay you know basically as healthy as it can they can possibly be for their age right up until the very end of life so the average person who makes it past 100 actually lives independently until the age of 100 which is just incredible because you know there are lots of people who are in a nursing home age 70 or 80 or 70, yeah, 90. Yeah. and yet these people who make it to these incredibly extended ages they squash down that ill health and i think that's something that you know, all of us could really hope to aspire to because once we understand that aging biology but we can de defer these diseases until later in life and then you know basically you know just fall off a cliff health-wise in the last year or two that's mm. significantly better than decades of decline which is what most of us can look forward to now so based on the research you, you've done and you've you know looked into as well um because there's more and more of this this out there at the moment I, I feel um how like for someone born today how long do you think they'll be living for looking forward it's a really, really tricky question. So if you um, if you look back sort of over the last 150 years, what you notice yeah. is that every year or so, we've added three months to life expectancy in the top performing country in the world. And it's absolutely incredible just how straight this line is. You know, you might think there are, there are loads of different factors that have gone into this. We've reduced the risk of infectious disease. We've, you know, in more recent times, come up with things like cancer therapies and heart disease drugs. But nonetheless, every year we sort of get three months, tick tock, I guess. Yeah. And if you just extrapolate that out into the future, then children born in relatively wealthy countries today can expect to live to over the age of 100. But actually, I'm rather more optimistic than this. And the reason is that um, the sort of therapies that I talk about in my book, the sort of the biological interventions that we can come up with that could make humans a bit more tortoise. Well, those things, you know, they're coming down the pike. We've got... Uh, we've got um, therapies that are currently in human trials which mm. need to be able to slow down or reverse the aging process in animals and suddenly that opens up you know a whole new a whole new ball game basically for us humans to be playing so uh, you know let, let's let's take the example of me i don't want to be too self-centered but sometimes you know it's, it's helpful yeah. to think of this in concrete terms i'm in my sort of mid to late 30s i'm 37 at the moment and what that means is that even if life expectancy doesn't really do anything exciting in in the near future then i can expect to live certainly into my 80s uh, with current life expectancy statistics maybe if i'm lucky and if i look <laughs> to myself yep. I expect to live a little bit longer still 
And what that means is that I've got another 40 years to look forward to. Now, you know, what's going to happen in the next 40 years? Well, I think in the next 10 years, we might see the first anti-aging drugs. They won't necessarily be, you know, the sort of thing where you can pop a single pill and live forever, because I'm not really expecting that sort of drug to ever come onto the market. But they might slow down my aging a little bit. And if I can, as I say, sort of combine that with a bit of exercise, a bit of good eating and a little bit of luck, maybe I'll live into my 90s or 100s instead. And what that means is scientists get more and more decades to develop more and more advanced drugs. So, you know, if you imagine you're a kid born today and you're expecting to live to 100, even if medical advances continue very much as they have in the past, mm. you've got a full century of scientific progress. And yeah. if you look back at the last century of scientific progress, it's just staggering what we've achieved. Like, we, we didn't even develop uh, CPR, so the thing, you know, you've seen in every medical drama ever where the doctor gets down and starts pumping someone's chest to restart their heart. Mm. It wasn't even invented until the 1960s. So if you think about how far medicine's come on in the sort of, you know, even within our lifetimes, then I think predicting how long humans born today are going to live is just really, really difficult because we can't imagine the kinds of biology and the kinds of medical advances that are going to happen during their lives. No, and you've answered that very well. Um, and I like the idea, of, you know, factually sort of three months a year extension of life. Um, but, yeah, we just don't know what the advances are going to be in the next, you know, 10 years or, or 20 years or 100 years. Um, but you can only imagine based on what we've experienced so far in history that it will continue to, to improve at a probably even more rapid pace, huh? So, well. so, yeah, because I think if you look at these kinds of drugs that are being developed, then you know there are things that we're going to know in the next two or three or four years, whether they do indeed intervene in these various processes that are behind aging. And, you know, I think we, we talk about things like stem cell therapy and gene therapy. I talk about these in the book. And these sound like very futuristic treatments. But, you know, although they are futuristic, there aren't very many of these kinds of treatments that are available today. The mm. first few are already available. And so I think it would be very, very unwise to bet against them being more widely available for all kinds of different conditions in 10 or 20 or 30 years. And actually, most people alive today can expect to live another 10 or 20 or 30 years, unless you're already very late in life or already very unwell. Then you know, there's an awful lot of time for science to advance. And if that can push your funeral back even further into the future, then you know, everything's on the table, basically. Yeah, yeah. So looking at things we can do to help the aging process or um, what do you say, so, suppress it or something, um, what, what are the basic things, non-medical things that, I mean, we should all be doing that you've found in your research? A lot of the sort of health advice, and there is a chapter about this in the book, some of it sounds surprisingly basic. So it's yeah. all the things that your mother would have told you. Make sure that you you know get plenty of exercise, don't eat too much, try not to be overweight, get a good varied diet. I think probably more vegetables in your diet is a good thing. I guess that the key headline that I should have started with is do not smoke. If you're, a, if you're a smoker and hoping to live a long, healthy life, that really is the number one thing you should try and quit. Um, and what, what I think really motivates me about these bits of health advice is they can sound a bit dull and dry and like you've heard them a hundred times before. But actually, when you drill down into the biology, you realize that they are literally slowing down the aging process. Almost all of these are, are slowing down different aspects of aging. And they're right. not only going to make you live longer, but they'll also make you live healthier for that period of time. So that's something that's really sort of motivated me to try and keep on top of these dull bits of health advice. Once mm. you understand a bit about the aging biology. And the other thing is that by sort of switching it around and understanding the aging biology, you can illuminate some less conventional bits of health advice. And I think my favorite of these actually is brushing your teeth. So scientists right. noticed in the 1990s that people who had better dental health, so less gum disease, less tooth decay, tended to get fewer heart attacks. And at first, uh, I think a lot of the scientific community just thought this was one of those cases where you might have heard this phrase before, correlation doesn't equal causation. So the fact that you can see people with you know, good teeth also have good hearts, maybe that's being caused by some third thing, like perhaps they're wealthy enough to have a lot of time on their hands to look after their teeth and you know, get good dentistry. They're mm. also wealthy enough to spend a bit of time exercising and you know, do other healthy habits. 
But as we've understood more about the biology of this, it's become clearer that there seems to be some kind of causal influence. And the idea is it could be caused by something called chronic inflammation. Now, inflammation is the process by which your immune system responds to a threat. And if it's not chronic, it's a very, very good thing. So, you know, say you get an infection, your immune system jumps into action, goes and destroys that threat, hopefully, and then everything just calms down again fairly rapidly. Yeah. Chronic inflammation is where that process goes on for longer than it should. And so right. if you imagine, uh, you know, say you've got poor oral health, you've got gum disease or something like that. These are bacteria in your mouth. And your immune system can never quite win that battle with those bacteria. That's why, you know, we have to do these sort of almost medieval things in dentistry, like drilling out the bits of teeth that have the decay. Mm. So what that means is this inflammation goes on and on and on, and it falls into this what's called chronic inflammation category. And now we understand a bit more about the biology of aging. We know that one of the drivers of the aging process is this chronic inflammation. So it seems as though that, you know, having these bacteria in this sort of constant battle in your mouth with your immune system could be driving the aging of your heart, could be driving the aging of, you know, many organs around the body. We even think there's some evidence that it can lead to dementia because the bacteria that are often found in gum disease are sometimes found in the brains of people with dementia. So it could well be that this, um, you know, seeming sort of unrelated battle that's going on in your mouth actually has these wide-ranging implications throughout the whole of our bodies. Right, okay. And that would be similar for inflammation throughout the body anywhere else? Where your where your body's trying too hard yeah, too long to battle. Really, really you go. Definitely something that's really really commonly found in all aspects of the aging process. And I think a really good example of this is something uh, that is is it's something that we're actually developing drugs for already. It's something called senescent cells. So senescent is just the biological word for for aged basically. And these are old cells that accumulate in all different parts of our body as we get older. And as we get older, more and more of these cells arrive, and they seem to drive the aging process. They seem to be responsible mm. for diseases like cancer and heart disease and all kinds of different age-related problems often have senescent cells associated with them. And the reason that this seems to be is that these senescent cells, they're cells that have become sort of, as I say, in this aged state. And what normally happens is they emit this cocktail of molecules. And what these different molecules say, they're, they're signals, basically, to the rest of your body. They're saying, hey, immune system, we're over here. We're senescent. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Can you come and clear us up, please? Mm. And when you're young, those signals you know, go out into your bloodstream. Your immune cell comes over, finds the senescent cell, gobbles it up, and the problem is essentially solved. But as you get older, these senescent cells are accumulating more and more and more. Your immune system is getting weaker. That's something that we also know happens as you get older. So it's getting less effective at clearing up these cells. And so this constant uh, emitting of these mo molecules telling the immune system to come and clear up those cells is one of the contributing factors to chronic inflammation. Mm. So that's something that can drive inflammation throughout the body. So it can, in certain specific cases, cause inflammation locally. So something like uh, arthritis can be caused by senescent cells. But it also seems to affect the global aging process at the same time. Yeah, well, that's um, a lot to take in. With the um, and I think the um, the sort. No, no, you go first. There you go. I was going to say that. The really optimistic thing about this is not just uh, that, you know, we've discovered that these cells uh, contribute to this inflammation, but also we've got drugs that can potentially remove these cells. And these are drugs called senolytic drugs. So they're drugs that kill these senescent cells. And um, the results are just really quite astonishing. If you look at the, what, what we've achieved in mice, if you give these drugs to old mice, and these are mice that have therefore accumulated a lot of senescent cells in their body, mm. you can give them to mice aged, uh, I think it was about 60 months. Sorry, I got that completely wrong. You give them to mice age 24 months, which is about 60 years in human terms. Right. And they clear out these senescent cells. So that's the first good thing. Uh, but they seem to basically make the mice biologically younger. So these mice, they live a little bit longer, which is a good thing. But they're not staggering along, frail, sort of unable to muster the energy to die. They're actually uh, living healthier as well. 
they get less cancer, they get less heart disease, they, they get fewer strokes. There's all kinds of different diseases it seems to be preventative of. They're less frail, so you can put these mice on tiny little treadmills like they're doing these experiments, and after the senolytic treatment, they can run further and faster on the treadmills, having cleared these cells out. And honestly, these mice just look fantastic. They have mm. much, uh, smoother skin, they have thicker fur, less gray fur. They just look like younger mice. And so what this really shows us is, firstly, that these senescent cells are a driver of many different aspects of the aging process, not just the disease, not just the death, not just the frailty, not just the sort of cosmetic stuff, but maybe all of the above. And secondly, and most optimistically, we can treat these cells, we can kill these cells and slow down or even reverse aging. So that's a really exciting prospect, you know, not just for mice, but for these drugs already being in human trials as well. What do you call those cells? Senescent? They're called senescent, yes. Yeah. So it's just a biological word for old. And in fact, another place this, this word tends to crop up is that when you're talking about a species like a tortoise that has this flat risk of death with time, so it doesn't increase in risk of death, it doesn't uh, you know, become more frail and so on, as we discussed earlier. Mm. It's known as negligible senescence, i.e. not very much of this aging stuff. So that's just the technical term for aging, basically. So we can take a drug to get rid of those cells, which then helps reduce inflammation? It certainly seems to, yeah. And so this, this is that what's happening, but like with the trials. with the aging process. That's one of the things that's going on, certainly. So in the book, I break it down into 10 what are called hallmarks of the aging process. And these are the sort of fundamental biological underpinnings that drive all different aspects of why we age. And one of those things is uh, the accumulation of these senescent cells. Another is the failure of the immune system that I mentioned. That's something that tends to get weaker as we get older. Mm. And so that gets less good at clearing out those senescent cells, but also perhaps more obviously, it gets less good at fighting disease. And that's why, you know, it's so important to get your flu jab when you get older, because you're, you're at much greater risk of contracting and then dying from the flu obviously in the last few years we've all been rather unpleasantly reminded about the aging of the immune system because the coronavirus is substantially uh, worse effects in people who are older and again that's yeah. why it's so important you get your booster if you're above a certain age um and what you know so those are, those are two, just two examples. But there's also these other sort of eight things that are going on inside our body. There's damage to the DNA, the instruction manual inside all of our cells. There's mm-hmm. damage to the, the tiny little things inside our cells called mitochondria. There are just loads of these different processes. But what's really exciting is that now we've got some understanding of what those processes are. Just like the senolytic drugs target those senescent cells, we can target other parts of that process and hopefully slow down aging in a much more global way than we've ever been able to do before. If you take a, a drug to help remove those senescent cells, wouldn't like inflammation still exist if the, the person still has, you know, bad dental or whatever it might be? It certainly would, yeah. And you've got to, you know, bear in mind there are multiple different sources of, of, of this inflammation. Yeah. So, you know, just killing the senescent cells isn't going to be a sort of cure-all for ageing. And what I think actually is that the way we're going to treat the aging process is by understanding all of these different hallmarks and then coming up with multiple treatments to address each one. So maybe we'll find that, you know, we'll have to clear out the senescent cells, but we'll also have to do something to extend the telomeres. These are the sort of the caps on the end of our DNA that seem to happen as we get older. We also Mm. have to come up with drugs that can improve the function of our immune system. We don't have to come up with other drugs that can remove cells that have got damaged DNA and so on. And you know, there, there is a fairly long list of things we're going to have to do, but it's not an infinitely long list. And most importantly, by targeting these aspects that are actually drivers of the aging process, we can come up with preventative medicine. So the way that a lot of medicine works at the moment is, you know, you, you find a lump, you, you go down to your doctor, the doctor might say, oh, you know, that looks a bit dodgy and you know, send yeah. you a, a cancer specialist to get it checked out. And if they find out it's cancer, they'll treat that cancer. 
But the whole of medicine is conducted in these silos at the moment. So, you know, if you go to your cancer doctor, they'll give you chemo or radiotherapy to kill that specific cancer. But they might not be particularly bothered about the fact you've got a heart condition or the fact you've got some sort of, you know, dementia that's already starting to set in. Mm. We don't tend to treat people very holistically. And also we tend to treat these things right at the very final stage, which is actually when they're the hardest to treat. Yeah. Imagine you've got someone who's in their 80s who's just been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, this cancer is an end stage of the aging process. You know, it's already starting to grow and multiply inside them, their tumor. So that's a time when it's very, very hard to fight it. And this whole thing is happening in the context of an aged body with a weakened immune system with, you know, that's just generally more frail mm. and less able to take mm. the, 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 you know, actually quite nasty treatments we often give for cancer, for example. Yeah. And so what would be really great is if we could come up with treatments that we could give to, you know, 50 or 60 year olds maybe who aren't old enough necessarily to be starting to significantly um you know experience the aging process they're not so frail they haven't got so many of these diseases but then we could stop them from getting ill in the first place and that's what really excites me about this kind of medicine so there's a lot of tech and 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 things like that currently available that people can you know i guess be more preventative rather than reactive I think this is something we really need to develop in the medical system, actually. It's, it's very disappointing, like, how little um, governments and doctors... I mean, I, I shouldn't blame the doctors. The doctors are basically run off their feet trying to deal with, their, you know, the, the state, a lot of healthcare systems are yeah. around the world. But governments seem to dramatically underinvest in prevention. And, you know, this, this doesn't just extend to, you know, things that happen in the healthcare system or tech or monitoring. It's things like enabling people to integrate exercise into their daily life. So I, one thing that I'm sort of uh, also a passionate advocate of is cycling, because it means, if, you know, if you can cycle to work, that means you're sort of almost unintentionally getting some exercise into your day exercise that you might not otherwise get and so you know governments are just very very bad in all kinds of places around the world at providing the the sort of safe cycle lanes and that kind of thing that will encourage people Mm. to bikes yeah so i think there's a there's a whole sort of challenge with the stuff that we've already got available to us but the thing that i think is most important is that we invest in this aging biology research because the fact is that you know we've we spent decades trying to you know improve people's diets and get people exercising more and there has been a degree of success but behavior change is just really really hard mm. and so what i'd like to do is you know come up with these medicines that can act in conjunction with this kind of thing you know i'm not saying don't exercise i'm not saying don't eat well and so on but if we could supplement that um, sort of no pun intended with some drugs that could slow down the aging process at the same time then basically you know all of these things are going to be pushing in the same direction and making everyone you know potentially in the world healthier yeah. as they get older and that's what i wonder like behavioral change being quite difficult you know if, if we've still got a world um full of bad diets for example um even if we have you know certain medicines that can help the aging process slow um it feels like you know we're not still doing anything better but i guess for those that do take care of themselves would um have an exponential lifespan anyway you know what i mean i think the way to think about it is that as, as i mentioned in the health advice answer um a lot of these things that we you know think of as bad lifestyle be that smoking be that you know eating badly or whatever mm. it might be these things do essentially accelerate the aging process. I think a really good example of this actually is that often um, when I talk to people who aren't necessarily scientists studying aging, but they're sociologists or they're you know people working in the community with older people, yeah. um, what, what they'll often talk about is is uh, you know a really serious problem that people who live in poorer parts of uh, various you know, cities or various countries tend mm-hmm. to have much much shorter life expectancies than people living in the richer parts of those cities or countries, and that is a really serious issue. You know, there's this huge inequality of life expectancy. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, why should we be thinking about these drugs to slow down the aging process when, you know, 
all I want is for my patients or for the people that I work with to stop smoking or, you know, not drink so much or be able to get a bit more exercise, have a bit more free time in their day in order that they can do these things. Mm. And that is really, really important. Again, I'm not advocating that people don't exercise or we don't try and encourage people to eat better. Mm. But given that all these things are essentially accelerating the aging process, it would be really, really helpful to increase the life expectancy of poorer people if we could have some of these preventative drugs that would stop them from getting ill. And if they weren't getting ill, they'd be able to work more. And so on and so on. So these things are sort of self-reinforcing. They do, you know, we, we can't we should we can't simply abandon all of the public health measures or all of the you know uh, attempts to fight poverty. But at the same time, these things are all pulling in us in the same direction. And I'm just hugely optimistic that we can you know potentially bring all these things together and try and make, as I said before, everyone in the world you know happier and healthier as they get older. Yeah, I like it. Do you think there needs to be more early intervention um, and and um, systems in place? I suppose in our local governments that allow people to go in from a younger age. Cause I, I just, I went through um, a medical check recently um, because I was interested in, in this sort of topic um, and I'm 40 now. So I thought it was a good time to do that, but um, there didn't seem to be too much of a concern, I suppose. And maybe that's just because I shouldn't be concerned. But um, when I read a lot of these things, there's a lot of um, advice out there that suggests, you know, go and get, thorough checks because if you get onto anything early like really early um you're going to be better off in the long run i think that's exactly right yeah and i think that so much of uh you know the, the way that we age is cumulative and again this is a really important thing to take into account with the health advice if you think about you know say, say a particular cancer for example requires 10 mutations in your dna 10 mistakes in your genetic code in order to turn into a cancer it might be that five of them are just you know random bad luck three of them are caused by diet and two of them are caused by something else that's within your control and you only need to stop that last mutation in order to stop developing the cancer but the earlier you can catch it you know the more slowly you can accumulate those mutations the better for your health in the long run hmm. and i really think that prevention just isn't particularly integrated into these systems there's a sort of um I've heard this comment that in the UK we have the National Health Service, but really it should be called the National Sickness Service because almost nobody goes to their doctor when they're well. You go to the doctor when you've got an ache or when you've got a pain exactly. or you found a lump or yeah. when there's something wrong with you, basically. But if the healthcare system could just take a look at you beforehand and try and give you some advice, try and monitor what your levels of various different things are and try and guide you in the right direction, we could prevent a lot of people from ever getting ill. And actually that's going to be particularly important once we get these, these sort of real anti-aging drugs that can actually you know, reverse or slow down aging. Because we're going to want to be able to you know, do, do a test to find out how many senescent cells have you accumulated. Is it time to give you that senolytic treatment yet? If so, you know, where in your body have the most of these cells accumulated? So should we give you a specific senolytic that's targeted to that particular region and so on? So mm. I think this is something we need to develop right now. Firstly, because there are direct immediate benefits by helping people you know, optimize their lifestyle and their health and so on with the tools we have available today. But secondly, because in 10 or 20 years, we're going to have these new drugs, these new treatments, these new interventions, and we need to have the systems in place to be ready to deploy those if we really want to reap the benefits. Yeah, and I suppose we need more more people in that sort of area because, as you said earlier, you know, doctors run off their feet dealing with um, um, all the unwell people, um, don't really have time to make way for um, this new intervention where having more customers come into early prevention sort of medicines. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is, um, I think the, the, even the way that medical training is conducted at the moment is actually really emblematic of this. So my wife is a doctor. Mm. When I first met, met her and started talking to her about all this sort of anti-aging biology stuff, I think she thought I was crazy. And as you can tell, thankfully, I've managed to change her mind in the intervening time. But, you know, if you think about her medical school, to the extent that they were taught about treating old people, it was about geriatrics. And this is the sort of 
there's a lot of sort of social issues that you have to consider. Maybe someone lives alone because their, their, their spouse has died or something like that. You've got to you know, think about the treatment in that context. Often older people have, you know, multiple different things wrong with them. So they're taking, you know, five different medications. So if you want to give them another medication, you have to make sure that they won't interact with any of the ones they're already taking and all this kind of stuff. It's all really, really important when you're treating those older patients. But mm. she hadn't heard a single word about these anti-aging treatments. And yet, you know, in her career, she's almost certainly going to have to prescribe some of these drugs when they're developed. Yeah. It's just incredible to me that, you know, biologists, doctors, you can go through a whole degree at a great university and never once hear about this stuff. But yet, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years, I'm absolutely certain that we're going to see some of this in clinical practice. Are there um, anti-aging drugs that currently exist or are they all still in trials? I think in terms of, you know, certainty about whether or not they work, they're still in trials. They may already exist and we just don't know exactly what they are. These senolytic drugs, um, so the, the way that this, these trials are going, and actually I think this is a, a sort of good general uh, way to think about how trials of these drugs are going to go. Um, they're often not targeting aging sort of per se, the broad, um, the, the broad thing that is aging. And that's for a few different reasons. One is that it's quite hard to get a drug approved if it targets the aging process, because medical regulators prefer to approve a drug for a specific, what's called an indication. And that's just jargon for like a particular disease or condition yeah. or problem that people mm -hmm. might have. And I mean, partly that's just because it's easier. Because if you give someone a drug for their cancer and then their cancer goes into remission, then you sort of proved it one way or the other very easily. But then if you think about the aging process, the sort of second reason this is tough is just the trials could take an incredibly long time. Because imagine you get a bunch of 65-year-olds. A 65-year-old, your average 65-year-old, only has a 1% chance of dying that year. And so that means you're going to have to watch them for an awfully long time for enough of them to die. You know, enough of the, 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 the patients in your treatment arms, the ones who are getting the drug and the ones in the control arm who aren't getting the drug. In order for enough people to die to see a difference between those two arms, you're going to have to do a huge trial that's going to last a very long time, which is very yeah, expensive. True. So actually, what, what we're finding instead is that the, the drug companies are trying to develop um, drugs using the mechanisms that we know are behind aging. So things like these senescent cells, but targeting particular diseases where those mechanisms are known to be a problem. So right. For example, uh, senolytic drugs are being trialed for arthritis. They're being trialed for mm. uh, a kind of blindness that we think is driven by um, these senescent cells. And the idea is that if these drugs are effective, so you know, obviously that's the most important thing, I guess. They've got to make sure that the, you know, the drugs remove the senescent cells, make sure they improve the patient's outcomes. Those are really, really important things to prove that the drug works. Mm. The sort of secondary thing we need to watch is: are these drugs safe? So, you know, say someone who gets a senolytic for their arthritis, do they have any side effects? And in fact, knowing what we know about senolytics, those side effects might even be positive. It might be that it reverses other aspects of the aging process in that person's body. True. We need to keep an eye on them. And if they're mm. safe, then we could start thinking, you know, let, let's instead of giving it to people who've got a specific senescent cell associated disease, we could roll it out to the wider population. Maybe we could think about giving it to people with heart disease, which again, we think is driven to some extent by senescent cells, but we've already got some good drugs for heart disease. So maybe we you know, wouldn't be so willing to try and experiment experimental drug on heart disease patients yeah. and again if it's effective and safe for heart disease then you might think well why don't we just start giving it to 50 year olds who happen to have enough senescent cells that we could give it preventatively mm. so i think there's going to be this gradual sort of expanding of the circle of patients you start with people who've got particular conditions that don't really have much by way of treatment at the moment but are yeah. specifically driven by a particular age-related change then you widen it to people who've got you know less and less serious conditions that are driven less and less directly until hopefully you know if everything goes to plan and basically if we get a bit lucky we could start giving these things out maybe even to everybody yeah right is there anything on the market at the moment that you know the general public without going to a doctor could could take that's um sort of one of those anti-aging sort of drugs 
There are lots of things that are purported to be anti-aging drugs or supplements, but there's nothing I think we have sufficient data for at the moment in order to be confident about it. Um, okay. I think this, the, the fact is that some of these trials are going on. They're going to be happening in the next few years. And honestly, you know, it's best just to watch and wait, given the data that we have at the moment. So, for example, there's a drug called metformin that some of your listeners might have heard of. In fact, some of your listeners might well be taking metformin right now because it's one of the world's most commonly prescribed drugs. It's actually normally prescribed as an anti-diabetes medication. That's right, yeah. You know, keep people's blood sugar under control if they have diabetes. But it also seems to have this effect. Um, people have noticed that diabetes patients taking metformin can often outlive uh, patients who aren't taking metformin and the reason of course they aren't taking metformin is they don't have diabetes so there's this strange paradox that you know people mm. with diabetes they tend to be healthier yeah. they tend to you know be less overweight they tend to have less heart conditions and that sort of thing that come along often with diabetes and yet the fact that the metformin seems to perhaps make the diabetics outlive them the problem is that we can't quite be sure that it is the metformin that's causal here because we've yep. never done the proper randomized mm. trial it's called so this is where you randomly give half the people metformin half the people nothing and see what happens that trial is hopefully going to be starting very soon in the United States where they actually just give it to a bunch of 60-somethings and watch you know, how, how they're aging, how, they're, how a whole variety of different diseases actually affected by their taking metformin. Right. And hopefully that should give us results within the next five years. So if I was sort of scratching my head about metformin, I'd honestly just wait until the results of that trial come in because that will tell us definitively one way or the other. Okay. What about um, like vitamins, minerals, things like that, supplements, I suppose, is a big, big market there for it. Um, I know of a few like NMN um, and things of that nature that are suggested to take to help health and longevity. Yeah, I think the evidence for these things just isn't quite there, unfortunately. So NMN is a, is, is a good example. Hmm. For theoretical reasons, uh, th to think that what's called our NAD, which is what the NMN is supposed to promote inside our bodies, there are good theoretical reasons to say that that might go down with age and why it might be important to try and raise those levels. But the experimental data we have, they're, they're just really mixed. There, was, um, there, there have been some trials in mice, but they haven't shown that the mice live any longer. Some of them show that they can improve performance in mice in older age. And there are just this handful of human studies. And they, unfortunately, there's just nothing that's... And enough evidence, yeah. So for example, there was a study that came out, I think about a year ago, um, that was it was looking at older women actually with diabetes. I think it was pre-diabetes to try and observe what NMN could do for them. And what they found was it did improve to some extent the ability of their muscles to take up blood sugar. And, you know, that, that sounds good. That's a good thing, you know, for people with diabetes. But the problem was they also measured, I can't remember exactly how many, maybe 10 other outcomes, and the NMN had essentially no effect. So we're just waiting for that slam yeah. that shows us that these things are effective. And, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to vitamins, there's been this very long-running idea that vitamins are hugely, hugely important for slowing down the aging process. But actually, the best trials that we've got now We've literally got trials that have looked at hundreds of thousands of people over years and years and years. And they find that most vitamin supplements, and I should caveat this, unless you have a particular um, vitamin um, shortage that you know, your doctor has told you to take a supplement to correct, then actually most people don't live any longer if they take vitamins. So again, it just appears that's something that was, it was, a, it was a good theory. It had a good theoretical basis, but it just didn't play out in the trials. Right. Okay. Interesting. Andrew, um, great book. Thanks for uh, coming on the show and, and sharing today. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I think the, um, the one thing I'd like to leave you with is thinking about some of the ethical implications of this, which is something people often ask me about um, in, in, in all kinds of different contexts. People mm. are worried about things like overpopulation, you know, what happens if people, uh, if people are dying less and so on. And um, 
I think the single most important thing to remember is what I talk about aging as being in the book. So I describe aging as being our world's largest humanitarian challenge. And that might sound like a slightly counterintuitive thing to say from what, you know, sounds like a, a fairly natural process, as we said at the start of the show. Yeah. But actually, you know, if you think about aging as the cause of all these diseases, the cause of the cancer, the cause of the heart disease, the cause of the dementia, you know, things where you can literally have your personality, your mind, your memories robbed from you by the aging process. And if you think about how many people it kills, so um, if you add up all the deaths around the world, there are 150,000 people who die every day on Earth. Over 100,000 of them die of aging. And that's the huge ethical imperative I think we have to try and do something about this process because it's the single largest cause of death. You know, it's twice as big as every other cause of death added together. I think it's arguably the largest cause of human suffering because of all those diseases, because of the fact that they often, you know, you often struggle with these diseases for years before they finally kill you. Yeah. I think that's the huge, huge ethical case for doing something about aging. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Mm. If you do have any of those ethical concerns, there's actually a free bonus chapter of my book online that you can go and check out to you know, dive into the nitty gritty about things like population or you know, won't rich people be the first people to get access and that questions like that. You can go to ageless.link slash ethics and get that chapter for free. That's good. Nice. Mate, um, thanks once again for coming on the show. Appreciate you taking the time out. I know it's um, late in the evening for you and um, yeah, certainly do appreciate it. And I'm sure the audience will enjoy the conversation today as well. Guys, check it out at thehiddenwire.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden white this is the hidden white my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon